turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, as uh, we look at, the, at the, uh, the entirety of the chapter, probably won't have time to dig into every verse, but we'll look at the uh, kind of a big bird's eye view of the chapter as we uh, continue our walk through the book of Revelation. As you probably can tell, I look at Revelation as a word for God to us today, uh, not just a prophecy, though it does contain lots of prophecy, but uh, what is God saying to us? John wrote this to seven churches that, uh, that were alive and, and uh, doing uh, things in his day, and he wrote the book of Revelation uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to encourage them, to help them in their daily walk with Jesus. And so uh, if we miss that part, uh, then we miss what God's saying to us. It's not just about something that's going to happen off in the future sometime or another, but the Holy Spirit wants to say something to you and I uh, tonight. And so we come... Um, and humbly bow before God's word and let his word have rulership over our lives. Surrender, submit to him and what he wants to do uh, with and through us. So look at Revelation chapter 14, let's read verses 4 and 5 as we uh, start off tonight as a way of kind of jumping in. Where the Bible says, uh, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, or they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit. For they are without fault before the throne of God. We all tend to have role models, don't we? Uh, you have role models in your business, role models in music, role models in athletics, role models in your career, uh, different things like that. And tonight, we're going to look at some people that I originally called, entitled this message Role Models. Um, I just didn't, it just didn't sit as well with me as I wanted to. And so I changed it, uh, to actually I changed it at 440 this afternoon, <laughs> at 420 this afternoon, to Exemplary Encouragers. <laughs> exemplary Encouragers is better than a role model somebody look up to. Uh, what we're talk about tonight is that we all should have people in our lives, Christians in our lives, that encourage us uh, by their lifestyle to live closer to Jesus, to love uh, Jesus more. One of my uh, role models, my exemplary encouragers when I was in college, especially and all through my life, uh, was a lady named Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you have heard of Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, you may have heard her on a radio show called Gateway to Joy on 91.5. She used to have that radio show here uh, in Andalusia on the Montgomery station. And uh, this is how she always introduced her show. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, when I was in college, I read a couple of Elizabeth's books, one called Through Gates of Splendor, one called The Savage, My Kinsman. And uh, what really uh, struck in my heart, so many people's hearts, is that Elizabeth was married to a guy named Jim Elliott. Some of you will be familiar with Elizabeth's story. Uh, Jim and uh, four other missionaries were in Ecuador with their families, uh, trying to make contact with a group called the Aka Indians. They've since changed their name to the Uwani Indians. And uh, they were going to be the first white men to actually make contact with the gospel uh, to this Indian tribe. Uh, when they did, uh, all five were speared to death. And uh, Elizabeth, of course, lost her husband. All the other wives of these men lost their, their husbands as well. Uh, two years later, uh, Elizabeth with her daughter Valerie uh, went to the Yaka Indian tribe uh, with her daughter, as, and they lived there for, for about two years. You can see a picture of Elizabeth here with some of the uh, Indians in the tribe. Um, so that's her ministering to these guys. You can flip to the next tribe, uh, to the next picture, <laughs> next picture. This is probably the guy that speared her husband to death. And that's her daughter, Valerie. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, what a 
tremendous testimony. Another lady named Rachel Saint, her brother was speared to death as well. Rachel lived there longer um, than, uh, than Elizabeth did. And so that's kind of the thing that really caught my attention with Elizabeth in 1981. I got a chance to go to a uh, Campus Crusade for Christ Christmas conference. Uh, at that conference, I got a chance to hear Elizabeth Elliot speak in person. Uh, also speaking at that conference was an up-and-coming young guy you may have heard of by the name of Billy Graham. You'd think I'd be better than I am. I <laughs> haven't heard those two guys, but you know, hearing a sermon doesn't make you a better Christian, does it? You have to actually live these things out. But yeah, we got a chance to hear Billy Graham and Elizabeth Elliot at the same conference. And the thing about Elizabeth, when you know somebody has, um, has went back to the Indian tribe that killed your husband, speared him to death to share Christ with them with your two-year-old daughter, uh, when she spoke, y'all, she spoke very matter-of-fact, a very level tone. She didn't speak loudly. Could have heard a pin drop. There was probably, uh, there's probably 5,000 people or so there. You could have absolutely heard a pin drop. Just the uh, spiritual authority she carried by her testimony was something else. So the more I learned about Elizabeth, I uh, heard a radio show on her this last week, the more I've read about her. Uh, her life was not an easy life. This was not easy as you could imagine. Uh, about 10 years later, after Jim's death, she married another guy who died three years later from cancer. And then she ended up marrying another guy named Lars and uh, listening to the lady who's in charge of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation. They're trying to make many of her sermons, articles and things like that, or sermons, talks, articles, um, radio shows available online at elizabethelliot.org. Um, she, uh, the lady that's in charge of all that said that uh, Elizabeth's marriage to Lars was a difficult marriage. Um, they loved each other very much. And when Elizabeth got dementia, Lars took very good care of her. To, uh, he was her caregiver. But um, difficult marriage. Uh, wasn't easy. He seemed to be a very controlling kind of a person. And uh, one of the resounding themes of Elizabeth's life is when you go through the hard times, you get to know God better. Listen to what she wrote. The deepest things that I've learned in my own life come from the deepest suffering. Out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. She was quite a person. We uh, actually have a friend named Camille who was an airline, atten uh, airline attendant for a while. And uh, she's one of Laura's friends. She's one of the first people to help disciple Laura. And they were all, uh, they'd read all Elizabeth Elliot's books. They had small groups about Elizabeth Elliot and all that. And one day on one of Camille's flights was Elizabeth Elliot. And Camille could not wait. And she, um, she got a chance to see Elizabeth and she introduced herself. And it was somewhat of an underwhelming experience. Um, sometimes it's better to have role models from afar. <laughs> and uh, that way she, uh, she met Elizabeth and she said, um, she said, you know, Miss Elliot, you are just one of my heroes. You know, we've read all of your books and stuff like that. I'm going through a difficult time in my life. I really need some clarity about something. Would you pray for me? And Elizabeth said, no. You need to learn to walk in faith. You don't need clarity. <laughs> so there you go. That was her word. She was not a touchy-feely kind of a person. She was not a, a tap, tap you on the head and everything's going to be fine kind of a person. Another quote that she said is, I'm convinced there's nothing that can happen to me in this life. Watch this. That is not precisely designed by a sovereign Lord to give me the opportunity to know him. Now, as I talk about this tonight and talk about role models, examples, encouragers, things like that, what I want us to think about is this. We don't want to strive to be role models. The idea is not to strive to be an example. We want to, be, we want to strive to be real 
and genuine in our walk with Christ and then let Christ do what he wants to with our influence. Our desire is not to look around and say, I sure hope people consider me a role model. That's not it at all. We're going to see 144,000 tonight in the book of Revelation that are really good uh, exemplary encouragers. We're going to look at their life and get some encouragement because uh, uh, in a much deeper and harder and more painful way, uh, they live faithful to Christ during the most horrific times that the earth has ever seen. And so we're going to draw some lessons from them. We're going to see from them some things that will help us walk with Christ in a different way. Look at where we start at, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. And as I talk about this, as I say, we want to strive to be real. You see, I read a quote this last week that said, would you rather be liked or respected? Would you rather be liked because you fit in or respected because you stand for, they would say something, I would say someone. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, as we get into the chapter, it says, then I look, this is John, and he says this a lot, then I look, that means a scene change, it's a, it's, a, it's a scene change. Then I looked, and behold a lamb, we know that's Jesus, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. So, a lot of debate in the commentaries to say, is this on earth or is this in heaven? And it's, you know, you can't really stomp your foot. I would, I would tend to say this is probably in heaven. You see, if you, Revelation, I don't think, is always sequential. Uh, the biblical writers did not always write in a way that's absolutely sequential. They wrote with a message. Their primary purpose was to get a message across. And, uh, and the reason I would say, and, and there's others that are way smarter than me on both sides of the issue, okay? But the reason I would say I think this is probably in heaven is because uh, of Mount Zion, uh, I think, represents heaven in this particular passage. And we don't see Jesus coming back to earth yet. You still have the bold judgments. The seventh trumpet hasn't happened yet. Tribulation is still going on on the earth. And so that's why I feel like he's not come back to earth yet. That seems to be trying to force something into the text that hasn't happened yet. As I said, there are people smarter than me on both sides of the issue. Whether it's looking ahead, which I think it is, to when Jesus is, is standing there, John still sees him, and the idea behind this, whether it's on earth or in heaven, is that Jesus is triumphant. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the champion, and that's the encouragement that the churches in John's day needs to know that in the midst of their suffering that Jesus is still the champion. He's still triumphant. It's encouragement you and I need today with all the changing values, changing morals, things that you never thought you'd see, to know that Christ is still in control. He is still enough to see you and I through whatever kind of situation the world happens to throw at us. It's interesting to know in Revelation 13, 1, the beast stood on the sands of the sea and Jesus stands on Mount Zion. He is so far above any authority or demon or anything else of this world. Now, when we look at the 144,000, we saw these guys in uh, Revelation chapter 7, and um, we notice there that 144,000, 12 by 12 times 1,000, it's a symbol of completeness, symbol of fulfillment. And uh, it's my best interpretation would be these are uh, yeah, full turning of the Jews to Christ at the end of time, uh, that these guys are probably going to be evangelists, go out throughout the world to share the gospel of the message of Jesus. So I really feel like this is probably uh, God's fulfillment of the promises to Israel. 
Uh, I don't know that you have to make this a literal 144,000. I think the number, it'd be hard to not to, it'd be hard to miss the symbolic number here. Uh, 12 nations, you know, 12 uh, tribes of Israel, 12 uh, uh, apostles of Jesus uh, times a thousand. And so, uh, some people think it's representative of the church at large, spiritual Israel, as, as you were representative of all of God's people. Either way you do, the message still hangs that Christ is going to see these guys through difficult times, through horrific times, and they will stay faithful. They will stay faithful, and it's the encouragement for you and I, no matter how hard the peer pressure or the temptation or the, or the possibility of compromise is, we can choose to obey the Lord. And so let's talk about exemplary examples, exemplary encouragers. What kind of people are the kind of people that encourage each other? What kind of people can we be to encourage each other? First of all, we'll have to be the kind of people that rely on God's power. The kind of people that rely on God's power, these 144,000, whether they're the Jewish evangelists at the uh, end of the tribulation, which I probably think is true, or whether they're representative of something else, either way, here's the thing. They can't and you can't live the Christian life apart from God. I still remember Bill Bright saying the, um, the Christian life is not hard, it's impossible. There's only one person that's ever lived it, and that's Jesus. And so you can try and fail, or you can let Jesus live it through you. We don't want to rely on ourselves. We want to rely on him. And we see that here in Revelation 14, 1, the New International Version. Look at what it says. Then I looked, and uh, there was before me was the Lamb. We know this is Jesus standing on Mount Zion. That's victory with him, the 144,000. Now watch this. Who had his name and his father's name written on their Foreheads. Now, we're going to see this group do some really cool things. We're going to see them be courageous. We're going to see them be faithful. We're going to see them to be the kind of Christians that all kinds of people should, should want to be, desire to be, long to be. But it starts with the fact they belong to God. And we'll see it later on that God has redeemed them. Christ has done a work in their life. It's not that they're super saints. It's not that they have more resilience than you and I. It's not that they just have more courage than you and I. It's not that they're stronger spiritually than you and I. It's that they knew their father. They depended on the Holy Spirit. They were sold out to him and they were able to stand firm because what? They belong to God and God is behind it all. The God, watch this, the God who promised them the God who possessed them would be the God who protected them with his power. And if you and I want to be triumphant believers, one of the most important things we can do at the beginning of every day is to say what? Lord, not my will, but your will. Lord, not my power, but your power. Lord, I can't, but you can. Lord, I am not able to love my enemy. I'm not able to forgive. On, on my own, I'll bail when I get an opportunity to share my faith today. On my own, I will compromise when the peer pressure gets hard enough. But Lord, I know that you are faithful and I know that you can enable me to stand whatever storm comes my way. Elizabeth Elliot, give me give you one more quote of Elizabeth. Choices will continually be necessary. And here's the thing I love what she said. And let us not forget possible. What is she saying? There will be hard choices in your life, but you can't obey God. Obedience to God is always possible. Everybody say possible. 
it's a deadly error to fall into the notion that when feelings are extremely strong, we can do nothing but act on them. And I can remember hearing Elizabeth speak and reading several of her books, and that's one of the things she would say. Don't rely on your feelings. You can choose against your feelings to obey God, and if you will step out, God will give you what's necessary, even if you don't feel like it, even if sometimes feeling weak can be one of the best blessings we have. Why? It makes us depend on God even more. So one of the big choices we have to ask ourselves, am I depending on myself or am I depending on God? Is my hope in the fact that I belong to God and not in some kind of uh, ability, strength, moral fortitude or whatever I have on my own? And it also reminds me, am I attempting anything? Am I looking for God to do things in my life or for God to challenge me to do things that I cannot do on my own? I mean, as an individual, is there anything that we are trying to do? Is there any obedience that God is calling us to that you know if God doesn't come through, you'll fail? Second thing, first of all, we rely on God's power. Secondly, it results in praise. When we rely on God's power, we end up what? Praising God for what he does. It's such a cool thing. We see God do things in our life that, uh, that we know that we can't do. I was talking with a friend of mine here a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they were telling me about a very difficult time they had in their life a year or so back. And uh, they were saying it was so hard and difficult, and I didn't know how I was going to get through it. But she said, you know, the thing is, right in the middle of it, I just had this supernatural peace. And, it, uh, and she said, you know, I know where it comes from, but she, I, I don't know how it came. <laughs> she said, I, you know, it just, just one day, I was, I was walking along, and just God gave me the supernatural peace that I belonged to him, My life was in his hands, and that I could trust him. And she said, I really, to be honest with you, I really didn't anticipate it. It was better than I even thought it was going to be because it kind of came out of the blue. Look, if you will, here in Revelation chapter 14, verses 2 to 3. How many of you here tonight would say you've experienced God doing something in your life you couldn't do on your own? Amen? Peace, power, joy, something like that. Look in uh, chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne. And the four living creatures and the elders, no one could learn the song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Notice how quickly praise comes into the scene here. And this is one, another reason why I think this is probably referring to after the end of tribulation and all of that because what? They're singing a new song, the 144,000 who have been, past tense, who have been redeemed from the earth. Now, as John's writing, we, they still got things to go through, right? As, you, as I've mentioned to you before, this is what's called the prophetic past tense. God's writing something into the... As in the past tense, it hasn't happened yet. Why? It's surely going to happen. It's, already, it's as sure going to happen as if it's already happened. So it shows them in, 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 um, in heaven, and there's this loud sound, and it's melodious, and it's a song, and they're praising God, and it's not a half-hearted praising God. They're singing a new song. They're praising God for what he's done. He's protected them in a very difficult time. If that ever happened to you, say amen. He's provided for them in a very difficult time. That's ever happened to you, say amen. amen. He's rescued them in a very difficult time. That's ever happened to you, say amen. And because of the, of, the, of the horrific time and what God did to protect and provide and rescue, they are absolutely praising him. As a pastor, I've had the opportunity to be in a lot of hospital waiting rooms during the last 
uh, 30, 40 years I've been a pastor. And um, every once in a while, in the operating, in the, when the doctor comes out to the waiting room, they will share news with the family, and the family will jump up and just hug. The, I've seen the, seen the doctor's neck get hugged several times. It's usually not when the tonsils have been taken out. It's usually not when the tubes have been put in the ears. She's usually not with a gallbladder, and she's usually not with appendicitis. When, does the, when do the family jump up and hug the doctor's neck? When they weren't sure if their loved one was going to make it. When the doctor says, we got all the cancer, and they're going to be fine. When the doctor says, we repaired the heart valve, and everything's going to be, that's when the hugs come, right? And oddly enough, sometimes it's going through the deep fires and the hard trials that the deepest praise comes from our heart because we see what God really does. It's a bit confusing because it says only the 144,000 could learn the song. And we, we, we look at that and it's a little bit squirrely because you think in heaven everybody's going to sing the same song. Everybody's going to worship the same song. This is why some people believe that this is representative of the whole church and perhaps that is true. But also it could be that they went through some particular trials and some particular things that they are grateful for that other people can't understand. See, there are things that you've been through that God's rescued you out of that you praise God for in a way that I can't really appreciate. Why well, I haven't lived your thing. I haven't, I haven't experienced your thing. I have some things in my life that I praise God for that you probably can't get into. I mean, you understand, but you can't have the exuberance that I have because what? It happened to me, happened to my family, happened to my, to my, to my loved ones. And so either way you want to look at that, either way, the way it's the same, they have a, they, a resounding praise for God. And it says that they praised him with the heart. The harp is known as a joyful instrument. It's mentioned over 40 times in the, in the Old Testament, and it's associated with joy. Now, when we went to Tennessee with the youth group, and I walked in the first night, and the worship band started to you know, hit the first note, and that bass started reverberating, and I felt it deep within my chest. <laughs> and I remembered I was going to bring some earplugs. <laughs> and I, actually, I didn't actually need them, but I thought I'm going to bring earplugs. But I forgot till, it, till it, I felt it deep down in here. You might be surprised to know there were no harps. <laughs> no harps on the, uh, on the stage there with the, uh, with, the, with, the, with the music for the youth group. Um, but the idea is whatever you like to jam with Jesus with, Think of that instrument, all right? If you like pianos, if you like guitars, uh, you know, if you like whatever, saxophone, trumpets, whatever it is, whatever brings you joy, think of this. This is a joyful sound, a joyful praise for what God had done in their life. You see, when we learn to praise God, not just because he brought us through the difficult time, because here's the thing, I wouldn't be who I am without my difficult time. You wouldn't be who you are without the difficult times. You wouldn't know God as well as you do without the difficult and hardship times. And so one of the places of real spiritual growth is when we can learn to thank God on the front end of the difficult times. Not just when it's over and look back and say, God, thank you that you got me out of that. Thank you that you provided for me through that. Thank you that you were able to use my life in the middle of that. But in the beginning of it, to be able to say, thank you, Lord, that this came through your fingers. Uh, this can't touch my life unless you let it. And thank you, Lord, that you are going to engineer something good out of this, that your heart toward me is good. And this reminds me of a quote by William Law. 
William Law wrote this. He lived in 1686 to 1761. And you think, what does he know about pain? No penicillin or painkillers. Okay. <laughs> okay, he knows a lot. So William Law wrote, who, would you know who is the greatest saint in the world? It is not he who prays the most or fasts the most. It is not he who lives the most. But it is he who is always thankful to God, who receives everything as an instance of God's goodness and has a heart always ready to praise God for it. The, who, he said, who, who's the Christian who's really living for the Lord? The one who's been able to look at every aspect of life and to say, thank you, Lord. This is your goodness to me, and you mean this for my good. So it results in praise. The third thing I want you to see tonight is there is a rare purity. And this is one of those things we really need today, right? In our exemplary encouragers. There's a rare purity that we see amongst the 144,000 here. That's a really cool and a really rare quality for us to have in our day and time to know that in the midst of a very immoral culture, we can live holy and pure lives. Look at Revelation 4 and 5, uh, 14, 4 and 5. These are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins. Uh, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Being first fruits, uh, first fruits always uh, an offering that more is coming. And so there's going to get the idea that others are going to come out of their witness. Okay, there's going to be a, a missionary kind of an effort here, and there's going to be other folks saved because of what's happening in their lives. And to the Lamb, in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. The 144,000 are committed to purity in body and in speech. They are committed to that. Now, what's a bit unclear here is why the Bible would say uh, they were virgins and were not defiled with women. Because we know from the whole of Scripture that um, the First Thessalonians chapter 3 or 4 says the marriage bed is undefiled. Sex within inside of marriage is not defiling. It's not to be looked at as defiling, but it's to be celebrated. It's no, in any way is it to be uh, sinful. So some people take that to mean that he's talking about spiritually, spiritually chaste, spiritually pure. Other people would say, and this may very well be the, what he's saying here, is because of the specific time and the specific calling and the specific need of the, of the hour, these were unmarried people because what? Of the horrific situation that's going on and the tremendous need to have the Word of God preached and not many were willing to do it. And so whichever way you want to, want to take that, the idea here is purity. The message is clear. We are not to compromise with the world. We live in a day where sexual immorality is rampant. We live in a day where sexual immorality is accepted, uh, celebrated. Um, I saw a church the other day uh, not around here, but a picture of a church the other day. It's a church, and out in front is the, uh, you know, the, 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 the LBGTQ plus minus whatever uh, colors on a sign that says pride in front of a church. Um, and, and so in a day when some churches are actually, and we're to love the LBGTQ community, we're to minister to them, we're to, we're to do everything we can to share the message of Jesus with them in a way that they can understand and accept and believe. But we can never, but when you put aside, even the word pride, pride goes before fall. When you have the word pride in front of a church, it's a terrible testimony, uh, a terrible thing to have. And so in a day like that, 
uh, we need to make sure that we, we are able to not compromise. These guys, the, I really believe the sexual immorality is going to be way, way worse when these guys are living. Way, way worse when these guys are living. And we can complain and talk about it and moan about it. And the thing that really gets me in our day and time is the number of, uh, of, of people in their 40s, 50s, 60s who've raised their family. They have children that are teenagers, children that are married. And uh, now they're divorced and uh, they have sleepovers with their girlfriends or boyfriends or, you know, that kind of thing. And it's almost like, what in the world are you thinking? What, what, I mean, you raised your children in church and now uh, you're just out in the open with sexual immorality. What happened? The sexual morals for the Bible are good for everybody, not just teenagers. Okay, they never expire in any of our lives. This is a word, a strong word, that we can live clean and pure lives. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. Because it's what John's talking about. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. This is the words of Jesus. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. An immoral church cannot live in victory now when it says these guys are blameless and without fault they're not sinless they're not sinless uh, everybody sins right everybody needs forgiveness everybody but they are committed <laughs> they are they have their hearts set and i really believe one of the keys to all this is in revelation chapter 14 4 when it says these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes that's our heart. It's not purity for purity's sake. It's not purity just to be clean, not just to be an example, but it's because they what? They follow Jesus. Their heart is not purity or not morality, just their heart is Christ, and to please Christ is to live a pure life. It also says they do not lie, and I really believe in this particular context, he's talking about they are willing to speak the truth about Jesus. Because at this point, um, what we've seen, you know, the sixth trumpet has blown. We're waiting on the seventh trumpet to blow. We looked at the backstory here of the beast and the Antichrist and spiritual warfare kind of going on in the background of all this. And uh, so the temptation, you know, to get the mark of the beast, uh, you can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And so there's a lot of temptation to compromise here. And I think when he says they do not lie is they remain faithful to speak the truth about Jesus. Because that's what's going to get them in trouble. And that's what's going to be hard to speak the truth about. So they remain faithful to the true message and the true gospel of Jesus. Adrian Rogers said this, In the great tribulation, you will either be led by the lamb or bossed by the beast. Can you say amen to that? Last of all, the realistic predicament these guys are. We talked about the power. We talked about the results in praise. We talked about a rare purity these guys have. And last of all, I want to look at a realistic predicament because, as I said, we saw the mark of the beast in chapter 13. They can't buy or sell without that. It's going to mean economic uh, just trouble, big, big trouble with the worldly system being ruled by the Antichrist. And yes, there's another side to this. A lot of times we look at this and how hard it's going to be if you, if you don't take the mark of the beast and you can't buy and you can't sell and you lose your job and you're hiding out and, and all of that's probably true. You know, all of that is very, very real uh, thing to happen. But look at Revelation chapter 14. There's another side uh, to this. To side with the Antichrist and refuse Jesus is to perish eternally. Look at Revelation 14 verse 6. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God. 
Give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen. has fallen, that great city, because she had made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is pulled out, poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. One of the amazing things is, at this point in history, with so much animosity toward Jesus, with so much rebellion against God, God is still offering a chance to repent. God is still offered a chance uh, for people to be saved. God is still saying to the world, come, come. We're anticipating, and it's just about to happen. We're anticipating the blowing of the seventh trumpet, which, which institutes the bold judgments. And these judgments just get worse and worse and worse. And so life is just deteriorated. It's just kind of coming apart. And yet God has given them another chance to be saved, another chance, as Phyllis talked about this morning, to come to Jesus. We see three angels here. One's a preaching angel. So he preaches the everlasting gospel. And so uh, somehow, someway, uh, which really wigs my mind out to try to think about that, uh, what that looks like, how that actually is going to happen. But somehow, someway, uh, God is getting his message to this angel, to the world, to the everlasting gospel. You still have time, even with all this stuff going on, with all the animosity toward Jesus, with all the rebellion, with the Antichrist and all that kind of stuff, there's still a message of hope. There's still the everlasting gospel. God is still appealing to mankind. You have time to reject the lies of Satan and respond to the eternal truth of God. Doesn't the patience of God amaze you? And they say, fear God, give him glory, and worship him. So you have the preaching angel. That's part of the everlasting, obviously the death resurrection of Jesus is in there, but, there's the, but then the three points they have, fear God, give him glory, and worship him. Then there's a predicting angel. He looks ahead and he sees the destruction of Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. Uh, and John's audience, when they hear Babylon the Great, they would probably think of Rome because that's the, uh, that's the real little a antichrist kingdom that's going on at the time. Uh, some people think that there's literally going to be uh, Babylon resurrected. It was a big deal, uh, a, a fairly big deal among some Bible scholars when Saddam Hussein uh, was in, ru in rulership in Iraq. They thought he might be going to resurrect Babylon the Great because that's where it was located. Uh, Babylon, the uh, arch enemies of Israel and of God were located in, uh, in what today is modern day Iraq. Um, I think it's not geographical. I think it's the world empires that are arrayed against God. I don't think he's talking about a specific location here, but the fact that the world is oppressing God's servants, led by the beast and led by the Antichrist. And so wherever it is, but I don't think it, it can be New York, it can be London, wherever God's people are oppressed and the message of Jesus is trying to be shut down and persecution of God's people are going on, that's the, that is Antichrist. And there's going to be a big move that way toward the end of time but God is still here appealing that it's all coming down at the feet of Jesus and so that's the predicting angel and then last of all there's the warning angel there's the warning angel and here's the predicament to refuse the mark of the antichrist will mean almost certain death 
To refuse the mark of Jesus means that you have an eternal place in hell. God's wrath, the Bible says here in these verses, Revelation chapter 14, will be poured out full strength. Now, sometimes in the ancient world, they would uh, dilute their wine, especially if they weren't anticipating getting drunk or something like that. Table wine, something like that may be diluted. Today, people sometimes dilute alcoholic drinks. But what God is saying here is, it's not going to be diluted anymore. We're going full strength. The, the wrath of God is going to be poured out full strength. There is a renewed interest in the last five or ten years among, in theological circles that hell may be a place of annihilation. That in hell, uh, you are tormented for a time, then you simply cease uh, to exist. And I've read some of that. I've read the scriptures they use for that. Uh, I just cannot see it in scripture. One of the reasons I can't see it is something like Revelation chapter 14, verse 11. Look at what it says. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. That holds out no promise for a second chance. That holds out no promise that you'll just be annihilated one day. That holds out no chance, no promise of any kind of hope beyond the grave that someone's rejected Jesus. And I've had people say, well, why would you choose to believe that? I don't choose to believe that. I choose to believe what God's Word says. That's what it says. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable, right? The idea that somebody is going to suffer the full wrath of Almighty God forever and ever and ever is a horrible fault. But the emphasis is the inescapability and the finality of judgment. While the wicked have no rest. The righteous will experience eternal rest. And the pictures of the rest of the chapter are just absolutely horrific. Uh, let's close with Revelation chapter 14, verse 20. And the wine press, talking about the wine press of God's wrath, and uh, the wine press was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Uh, that'd be 180 miles. Now, the picture there is you know, blood up to the horse's bridles for 180 miles approximately. I believe you need to look at this. That 1,600 is, a important, is an important number. It's 40 times 40, okay? 1,640 is often used of judgment in the Bible. It's often used of testing in the Bible. The rain fell for 40 days and nights in Genesis. Israel ate manna and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 lashes was the maximum whipping penalty in Deuteronomy. Israel did evil and God gave them an enemy for 40 years in Judges chapter 13, Goliath presented himself to Israel for 40 days. God gave Nineveh 40 days to repent. Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. So what does this mean? Blood comes up to the horse's bridles. What are a couple of things it can mean? One, it could mean that literally, which would be truly, truly horrible to imagine. Could mean that the blood splatters up to the horses, so, 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 so much blood that it splatters up to the horse's bridles. And it could simply mean this is a blood-soaked land. This is an image of absolute horrific punishment, suffering, the judgment of God for those outside of Jesus. Now, in our day and world, in our day and time, people like to try to downplay a judgment day, uh, to downplay hell, to downplay hell is going to actually be torment forever. Um, God doesn't seem to have a problem with it. 
God doesn't seem to downplay it or soft pedal it or say, gee, I wish this wasn't true. Uh, I wish it wasn't true. Maybe if I could see it from God's perspective better, I wouldn't think that. But when I think of people that I know, that I love, that I care about, that I pray about entering into judgment of this sort, I, I, it, just, it just racks my brain. I cannot hardly imagine it. It's one of the worst things I can even imagine. But to not say it is not doing anybody any favor. To not warn the ungodly, not to warn those who are lost, is not doing them any favors. You know, you know I, I don't want to try to scare it because if somebody makes a decision out of fear, it may not be a real decision, but you still got to tell the truth. Just like we, you know, this morning we talked about agreements with death. You've got to tell the truth because the truth is real. As I was, I'll close with this as I was studying for this message this morning. And by the way, a lot of people are offended at hell and brimstone preaching because of a smart aleck attitude or a gleeful kind of attitude on the heart of the preacher. And any kind of person who would preach hellfire brimstone with a gleeful heart is just, I just can't imagine. So anyway, I was reading one of the commentaries I was reading this week as I was studying, the last two weeks as I was studying for this message. This is what it said. A young atheist chose to consider the claims of Christ immediately Rather than deferring the decision because, watch this, a young atheist decided to take the claims of Christ seriously. Why? This is his own testimony. Because the doctrine of hell made the stakes too high to ignore. Too high to ignore. So he began to consider the, st- the claims of Christ. 24 years later, that former atheist remains a committed Christian and is writing this commentary that you're reading. The idea is not just to produce fear or sensationalism or whatever. The idea is to help us to see that this one wild and precious life, what we decide about Jesus in this life, determines where we spend eternity. Would you stand please with heads bowed and eyes closed? With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around. Uh, Tonight, I don't know where uh, this lands with you. Perhaps it... um, lands with uh, 10,000 reasons why you can praise God tonight that the blood's covered all of your sins, that you are one of those who've been redeemed from the earth and will be, and give praise tonight and will give and be, be given praise to God for all of eternity. Maybe it lands with you that, man, I need to be praying fervently for people who stand in danger. I need to have more of a heart to try my best to share with people, to warn people, to help people to understand seriousness it's not just about church attendance it's not just about believing the right things it's not just about going to church because that's the way you were raised it's about having a real genuine relationship with Jesus because once you die it's too late to have that over with then we have to decide that here so father in Jesus name I'm father this way so heavy on my heart so hard to think about, talk about, preach, study, this kind of thing. When I have people in my mind that I know aren't ready. I know aren't ready. And so, Father, we pray for those of our family and friendships that don't know Jesus. God, what they think of us, what they think about our decisions, and it's really nothing compared to their eternal destiny. So, Father, give us a heart to share you Loving ways, kind ways, truthful ways, ways that are helpful, not harmful, 
Give us a heart to pray. People that don't know Jesus, Father, thank you that you can enable us to be encouragers to each other by living lives dependent on you, lives of praise, lives of purity, and lives that choose you over temporary comfort. At least if you'll play softly, Lisa's going to play softly. The altar is open if you want to come kneel at the altar and pray.